Okay, welcome. Thanks a lot for, for coming here on this significant day. <laughs> so, first I should mention that this talk is joint work with Reason Machetti, Seamus Bradley and Lenny Smith. So they have the great ideas and my contribution is making the mistakes. So, job sharing is clear and when I prepared these slides and I sort of figured it's the 14th of February, this suddenly started looking a bit sober to me and I thought maybe I should have expressed my appreciation for my <laughs> lovely co-authors. Uh, so great two of you can be here. We will have a lovely Valentine's dinner afterwards. So here we go and I choose you naturally. Why? Back to serious matters. The plan for the talk is the following. I have sort of two preambles to make it clear what I'm after. So first I want to say a little bit about philosophy of science and why on earth climate physicists should bother with it. And the second is I want to say a little bit about what the kind of climate models I'm concerned with, with try to achieve because there seems to be a certain confusion around this question and I try to clear it up right at the beginning. Then the two main parts. The first part of the talk is sort of dedicated to the concept of representation and to make some general observation about representations and come to its relevant for scientific modeling. And in the second part, I try to take on board these general insights and make them more uh, precise and say what they mean in the context of mathematical modeling where you want to make probabilistic forecasts. And I hope I come to some tentative conclusions about what we should take away. Now the take-home message, the following, for part one, I want you to take away that representation is not mirroring. This is a common prejudice that representing something just means to point on the mirror to it. That is not the case. Um, a representation is not just a small thing, sorry, a small version of the real thing. And from part two, I want you to take away that probabilities calculated in a model can be very different from probabilities in the world, and then you can avoid serious mistakes, and at the end of the day also financial losses, by not being too confident about what your model tells you. And so, um, even if this is a philosophy lecture, but that should be highly relevant for, for um, practitioners. So I hope that all this is not just hot air, but that also people working at the front lines with such models, be it in climate forecasting or in finance for that matter, can actually learn something from the work done here. Now, preamble A, philosophy of science. So given this is the lecture philosophy at LSE, probably should say a little bit about what philosophy means to me. So this is, of, of, of course, a dangerous question. If you ask seven philosophers what philosophy is, you probably get nine inconsistent answers. So all I can do is try to put my prejudices on the table. And it's also good to be clear because you may end up in jail without that. I got almost arrested once over the question what I actually do. So 
I, I, I was invited to give a talk in Washington and uh, I came to customs and then the customs officer asked me, so what are you doing in the United States? I said, I, I'm going to give a talk. Said, oh, interesting. Where is your talk? I said, well, I'm at the American Institute of Physics. I said, oh, you're a physicist. No, I'm a philosopher. So what are you now, a philosopher or a physicist? I said, well, I'm a philosopher of physics. I said, that's weird. Where do you work? At the London School of Economics. <laughs> <laughs> By that time, they got seriously suspicious, and they ended up giving half of my talk until they let me go. <laughs> so, so being clear on philosophy is an existential matter, so hence a slide on the topic. So here are the sorts of three things, I think, that philosophers of science do. The first thing is you try to understand certain scientific concepts. So scientists claim to give you an explanation for certain things. So philosophers of science ask, what kind of explanations are scientific explanations? What are good explanations? What do you mean by an explanation? Or what is a law of nature? What is a scientific theory? Question of that sort. The, as the second aspect is when you do take certain scientific theories serious, what actually do theories say about the world in which we live? That question turns out to be non-trivial. For instance, it's not clear how to understand quantum mechanics. Does quantum mechanics tell us that we live in a probabilistic world? Or does quantum mechanics tell us that we live only in a deterministic world? People have been quarreling about that since quantum mechanics was formulated, and the debates keep going on. Questions of that kind fall within the remit of philosophy of science. And the third aspect is that philosophers should provide sort of a critical um, examination of scientific claims. For instance, some neuroscientists have recently claimed that they have a neurological explanation of aesthetic um, judgments. Now, what you would ask as a philosopher is, are these real explanations? Are these um, um, good explanations? Do they really capture what you want? Or is this basically a hype to get grant money in? The project here has a little bit of all aspects, but I think the emphasis is on aspect number three. And so, so let me um, expose the Achilles heel of the talk right now. The conclusion will be mainly negative in the sense that uh, I'm explaining what you cannot do. But with Francis Bacon, I want to argue that truth will sooner come out from error than from, from confusion. So if I manage to clear up some confusions today, then I hope that is at least a modest contribution to future progress. So in that sense, I hope that sort of a critical argument is not seen as a waste of time. Now, preamble B. What do we want to achieve in climate modeling? So what I'm going to do is look at the results of computer simulation of large and um, cutting-edge climate models. So what do these models really tell us about the world? So that is the question. But before we can answer that question, we have to ask a, a more uh, straightforward and basic question, namely, what do these models want to tell us? And the point to make here is that what is at stake when you 
use such models is not whether climate change is real or it's not real. Climate change is real. So if I'm going to make critical remarks about climate modeling and what follows, I do not mean for a second to suggest that um, climate change is unreal or we can keep um, polluting the planet as we like. So what, what I'm going to say should not be seen as grist to the mill of the skeptics that are still around in certain places. First, there is basic physics that you can basically make back-of-the-envelope calculations that show you that some sort of warming up has to take place. And there is also evidence from other sciences, like biology, you study um, the blossoming of trees or the migration of birds, and you see clear changes there which can be traced back to climate change. Now, what we do want to know from climate models is that given some heating up is really taking place, I mean, what are the local effects of this? So if we just told that the average temperature will go up by, say, one degree by 2050, but what does that really mean? I mean, what consequences does it have at the local level? So here's just some, some a Mickey Mouse scenario is just to make the question more, more palpable. It could be, for instance, that the only um, effect is that people in Micronesia sweat a little bit more because it's getting considerably hotter in Micronesia, but all, all the rest of the world stays exactly the same. It could be that it's getting much hotter in Micronesia and they really sweat there, but at the same time it's getting colder in Russia and they freeze a bit more than they already do. Or there could be any other number of scenarios. Uh, you may want to know what happens to the Norwegian coastline as an effect of global warming, or more homely, you may want to know what happens to the West Midlands or indeed to people in the postcode where the LSE is. So this is the sort of question you want to ask, or you would like to have answered, with climate models. And this is exactly, just to come back to practical politics, what UKCP aims to do. That's the UK climate um, projections. So this is a multi-million government-funded project that tries to give you very precise information about how climate change will affect various parts of uh, Britain and give you very precise information about how you have to construct your home and so on and so on. And so it is legitimate to ask whether such a project is possible and whether it could yield what it promises. And the conclusion I will reach is that some skepticism may be in order. Okay, with these preliminaries aside, <coughs> let me get to the first part of the talk. So the starting point is, now I am a generalize a bit, so I'm going into sort of general philosophy of science and then zoom in, I'm again on climate science later, questions about the particular part or aspect of the world. So you want to know something about the target system. For instance, you want to know something about planets moving around or bridges being stable under certain loads. The first reaction is, well, just make an experiment, manipulate the system and see what happens. 
Well, that's sound methodology, but making experiments is simply not always possible. Sometimes the target's too far away, for instance, when you want to study stars. Sometimes they're too large to intervene, for instance, when you want to study the solar system. Sometimes making interventions is not uh, possible due to the nature of the target system. You can't just intervene into the stock market and see what happens if, if the FTSE 100 has a different value. Or sometimes you can't intervene because there are moral quarrels. I mean, studying heart functions by manipulating someone's hearts isn't really on the book. So, and climate, um, arguably, has aspects of all these. So you can't simply go away and, and make an experiment on the climate to see what happens. Now, your reaction to this predicament is, well, let's build a model of the target system. We, we can study the model in order to learn about what the, what the model stands for. <coughs> for instance, we study the model of the solar system to learn about the solar system itself. And why can we do that? Well, this is because models are representations of the target system. So the Newtonian model of the solar system is a representation of the real solar system. And that's why by studying the Newtonian model of the solar system, we can learn about the solar system itself. But that answer is only satisfactory if we understand what representation is. So what does representation come to? So what do we claim when we say that x represents y? Now, there are some pitfalls here. So the popular view is that representation is mirroring. You just sort of point the mirror to things, and that's what representation really is. So if you want to do, put that in a definition, you say x represents y if and only if x is a mirror image of y. And so variations on that idea use similarity, mimicry, or isomorphism. Now, applied to the scientific context, this would amount to something like the following. So you have your target system here. You want to study the Earth. You point the mirror towards it. The mirror image shows up in the mirror. And then the scientist, here, here good old Boltzmann, looks at the mirror image and studies what he sees. Now, the problem is that this account of representation is wrong. And it's not only sort of wrong for philosophical reasons. It's wrong because it's seriously misleading. So representation is not mirroring. And I want to drive that point home by giving you some examples, I hope, that are intuitive enough to show or more to make you see where mirroring and representation um, come apart. And I use first um, some examples from a visual art and then from science. Note this first, that's sort of the starting point of the argument, that all mirror images are alike. If you have one mirror image, you have another mirror image, they look the same. You have another one, you have another one. But representations are not all the same. So here is a picture of, or a photograph of Mont Saint-Victoire, a seemingly um, innocuous mountain in southern France, but it's been a sort of great artistic inspiration. It's been painted by many notable painters. 
most famously Cezanne, who produced heaps of pictures of that mountain. Now, also Marston Hartley had a go at it. Then Gregory Cardew, Mark Tansy, Vincent van Gogh, and Jonathan Lewis. <laughs> well, all these are arguably representations of that mountain. You may quarrel that one, but certainly the previous ones, they're clearly representations of Mont Saint-Victoire, but they do not satisfy the criterion we have for mirror images, namely that they're all the same. They're all very, very different. So representation cannot be cashed out in just terms of mirroring here. That's really the moral I want you to take away from this. So representations is one thing, mirror images is a different thing. And this matters because the representations and <coughs> mirror images do not warrant the same conclusions being drawn from them. Here is an example of what can go wrong. If you confuse this representation with a mirror image, you would conclude that the mountain is pink. The mountain is not pink, of course. Or if you take this one, you may infer that the mountain is square and has vertical stripes. But the mountain isn't square and doesn't have vertical stripes. So you see that if you confuse mirror images with representations, you're seriously misled about the content of the representation. And the same is true for scientific representation. So you, you may now want to dismiss that as sort of artistic license and sort of a prerogative of the fine arts to twist things a little bit, but, but science gives you a picture of how things really are. Well, of course, I'm, I'm the last one to argue for some sort of anti-realism about science full stop. But even if you think science does provide you information about the real world, which I do believe, you have to be very careful about how science gives you this information and about how scientific representations encode representation. And here's an example from science where you see that you have very different representations of the same thing. Namely, look at models of the nucleus. From an early model of the nucleus is the liquid drop model, I think, unusually attributed to von Weizsäcker, which says that the nucleus of an atom is just like a liquid drop. It does all, all kinds of calculations on that assumption and gets some nice result. But there is the shell model, which makes a totally different assumption, which treats the nucleons fully quantum mechanically as being things that are put together according to quantum rules and have absolutely nothing to do with the liquid. You do rather different physics with that, yet they are about the same thing. And there is a possible error here. If the model represents the nucleus as the drop, a drop of liquid, you must not infer that the nucleus is a drop of liquid. That's exactly the same mistake that you make when you look at the picture and think the mountain is pink. And the moral is also in the sciences, representation is not the same as mirroring. Don't, don't just assume the model is a small version of the real thing. Being careful about how a model represents is absolutely crucial to understanding a model properly.
And they say, moment to, to throw another bomb out at you. So Virginia Woolf once wittily remarked that art is not a copy of the world. Um, one of the damn things is enough. And we could add here that science is not a simple copy of the world either. It is a collection of very sophisticated representations of um, varied kinds. And the challenge for, for the scientists and the philosophers to understand these kinds of representations and understand models <coughs> properly. <coughs> now, with these sort of general remarks about representation out of the way, let me get to the second part of the talk, which is interpreting mathematical model. And the subtitle here is From Glory to Gloom and Hopefully Back Again. Uh, let's see how far back we get. But at least if I get you to understand what the problem with getting back is, we can start working on it. And again, I want to use an example that should be simple and intuitive. And I come back for this reason to Newton's model of the solar system. So Newton studied the solar system and wanted to know how planets move. Now, what did Newton do? He didn't point the mirror to planets. That would be far too uh, both too complicated and too useless. So Newton simplified things. He first said, look at the sun. The sun may be what it is, a sort of a gassy, burning cloud. But let's assume this is a perfect sphere that has a homogeneous mass distribution. So it's basically just like the marble you can put on your table. Then he said, well, let's assume the same of the planets. They may be pear-shaped, or they may have all kinds of things going on on them. But let's assume they are ideal spheres too, just smaller marbles. Then assume that there is only gravitational interaction between the sun and the planet. There may be other kinds of interaction, but we just put them to the side. And crucially, there is no gravitational interaction between planets. Newton well knew that this was false. Planets do attract each other gravitationally, but for the sake of the model, he just threw that away and said, forget about it. And you make this assumption about all the planets, so you just get through the whole, all the combinations of planets. And on the basis of these idealizations, he could formulate the equation of motion of a planet. And from this um, equation, it follows that the ideal spheres we take to stand for planets move in elliptical orbits. Now, the question is, what follows from this about trajectories of real planets? Because all this modeling exercise really shows is that ideally spherically planets with homogeneous mass distribution that gravitationally interact only with the sun and nothing else move in such orbits. We know that every one of these assumptions is not true of the real world. Yet we want to make an inference from that model to what is true in the real world. How do we uh, go about that? Well, Newton's answer was, if the objects in the models are roughly like the real objects, then the behavior of the objects in the model is roughly like the behavior of real objects. In other words, if 
the sun is sufficiently spherical or in some specifiable sense close enough to a sphere and the, and the planet is also sort of, the shape of the planet is also sort of close enough to a sphere and the gravitational interaction between planets is really small compared to the gravitational interaction between the planet and the Earth then the conclusions are roughly true and so it is if you take um, astronomical data they show that planets really move roughly in elliptical orbits and so the, I call this the like for like rule so the like for like rule that Newton introduced into scientific modeling um, without calling it so that was just a tacit assumption but it's basically the Newtonian paradigm that, that um, taught us to think about modeling in this way works pretty well in that case and it works also pretty well in many other cases in particular when you look at mechanical engineering and contexts of that sort that is really very reliable it's very good in predicting solar eclipses as well for instance so if you're in the insurance business and you want to sell an insurance I'm insuring against harmful effects of solar eclipses it is very wise to use Newtonian models and believe what they tell you because the models are very reliable in, in that realm and you're doing well but now there's trouble on the horizon and the trouble comes in when you start thinking about the effect of initial conditions and these two smart gentlemen here, this is um, Henri Poincaré and Ed Lawrence. Poincaré basically discovered chaos, what I'm going to talk about now, in the early 20th century, but he, he himself didn't take this to be terribly unimportant, so he didn't make much noise about it, so it um, fell into oblivion until it was basically rediscovered by Lawrence in the 1960s. Or, or these or that's a, a rough history. I'm sure historians of science have something more elaborate to say about that, but that doesn't matter for my purposes here. So these are the two protagonists of the story I'm going to tell. And the insight is that the like-for-like like rule does not apply to initial <coughs> conditions if a system is non-linear. Now what non-linearity is, I'm happy to come back to that in, in discussion if you want, <coughs> but all you have to take away or all you have to know about this for the time being that this is a property that um, equations can have but you don't like them to have it. Things are nice when they're linear but in the real world hardly anything is linear so most equations in most fields are non-linear so this is a ubiquitous problem it's not just specific we normally linearize equations and hope for the best but sometimes you cannot do that so you have to take it serious and that's why I want to spend the next five minutes or so on explaining what the upshot of this is and why this gets us in trouble with the like-for-like like rule and I mean in particular I want to do that because climate models aren't linear so they have this property so all the problems we're going to talk about now they're relevant to the case at hand so you want to know the trajectory of your planet Saturn say you do what I just described you write 
make your idealization, write down your equations, solve them, and you see that as time goes on, the planet moves on this orbit, and say two hours later, you find it here. Now, oops, sorry, wrong way. Now you engage in a little, little bit of um, um, counterfactual reasoning and say, what would happen if the planet didn't start its trajectory here, but shifted two meters to the left or something like that? So it shifted a little bit. I mean, two meters by standards of a planet isn't much, but if you want to dramatize it, it's actually um, enough to shift it one millimeter to the left. And make that number as small as you like. The conclusion will be the same. Now, so now you do your equations, and the like-for-like like rule would expect you, or would lead you to expect that you find the planet here later. Similar initial conditions, similar effects later on. Now, in a chaotic system, this need not happen. So this is again the original trajectory, but now look what happens if you take the other one, it can go off completely. So you can, you can start the motion of planets very close to each other, and over the course of time, they will drift apart and do so usually very quickly. The upshot is that even the slightest um, difference in initial conditions make the like-for-like like rule, which served as well in some contexts, break down. So that is an unsettling insight. In particular, because you can never get exact initial conditions of a system. You're doing physics, so you, you never know which precise mathematical point is the initial condition. So you can't just say, yeah, well, this kind of factual exercise doesn't interest me. I just take the real initial conditions and forget about chaos. Uh, that doesn't work, because in, in a real physical context, you can never get your hands on the one and only true initial condition. So the question is, what do we do? And the common move then is to replace an exact initial condition by a probability distribution. So we say rather than starting here and look where the trajectory is, say the planet is roughly here and put the distribution over the initial conditions reflecting sort of your lack of knowledge of where exactly the planet is. And then what you do is you use your equations to move that probability distribution forward in time. So what you would do then, in other words, is instead of doing that exercise, you do this exercise. So you take the distribution here, move it forward, and see what sort of distribution you get at some later point. Now, the idea behind this move is that the like-for-like like rule should apply to probability distributions. So we've seen it doesn't apply to initial conditions, but we think it should apply to probability distributions. Then we hope that if the model is roughly like the target, then the probabilities we get out of the model are fine. Well, question is, does it really? And the sobering answer is no, it doesn't. And the message to take out of this is that the model, if the model is only slightly wrong, the probabilities it provides can be totally wrong. And 
rather than giving you sort of an abstract argument for this, I want um, to illustrate this with a simple example. But there are real calculations involved here. So, so you're a friend of animals and you have a pond in your back garden and you, you grow fish to make plans for how much food you have to buy and how much fresh water you pump in your pond. You want to roughly know how your fish population grows and you come up with this model here. Basically, n of t is the number of fish at a given time and this is the number of fish at t plus 1. Just for the sake of convention, assume that you're counting weeks so this is the number of fish in your pond last Sunday. That's the number of fish in your pond next Sunday. And they're related to each other by that formula. So you just have to count your fish last Sunday, plug it in, and this tells you how, how many fish there are in your pond next Sunday. So now if you plot that function, that's how it looks like. And I just want to to keep the visual appearance of that thing in mind for a minute. I'll come back to it at some later point. Now, spin the fiction a bit further. One morning you go out and count your fish and suddenly heaven opens and God speaks to you and God says, it's your lucky day. You can ask me one question and I shall answer. You ponder all kinds of things you may want to know, but eventually you think, I really want to know how good my model is. <laughs> and then God tells you, you've been quite good. You got it almost right, but just almost. You forgot the term in your model. That's the one here. It's the one you have, but plus this other term. So there's this other the mathematical functions that don't matter that much. What matters is that there's a number here, epsilon, and epsilon is very small. In the calculations you're going to see, we set the, the value of epsilon to 0.1, but you could make it even smaller. Probably the same stuff would come out. I mean, just you have to put, plug something into your computer. So the I mean, the story is cooked up so that you get your model almost right because what you missed is extremely small. And here, here is the graph. So the blue line is the one you've seen before. That's the original model you have. The pink dotted line is the model that God whispered in your ear. You see, it's if, if plotted this way, you can't tell what the distinction is. I mean, they look very, very similar. So on any account of similarity or a model being roughly right, that model should be roughly right. But now let's see how we're doing on predictions. Oh, sorry, I should say, given the model is roughly right, you, of course, using your like-for-like -like reasoning, would expect probabilities to come out right. Now. That will be frustrated. So here we go. Um, remember, just to, re to re remember what the game is, you want to move probability distributions forward in time, and that's exactly what we do. So we take the state space of the model you see, which is the numbers between 0 and 1, and we put the probability distribution on that space, which is this sort of thing. And this just breaks off because the plot isn't long enough. So if this would just be very high.
highly peaked function. So this is your probability that um, your the number of fish in your pond is somewhere here. And you pl now plug the same distribution into your model and then into the function that God whispered in your ear. And the blue distribution is what the model gives you. And the pink distribution is what the system, sort of um, um, God's um, equation, gives you. So after two steps, so in the story that's um, two weeks down the line, they still look roughly the same. So your like-for-like reasoning seems to have worked quite nicely. Four weeks, still doing fine. But now look what happens after two months. The system goes here, the model goes there. In fact, there's hardly any overlap between the two. And just to make it more, more vivid, what the effects of this are, so I'm assume you're betting with your mates about uh, uh, your successes or failures as a, as a fisher. Now, and the bet is just whether you're below 0.5 or you're above 0.5. So call the events black and green. So if you're somewhere here, it's black green and, and, and of course you see what the setup is. The setup is basically like flipping a coin, so heads or tails, so you, you have an event space with them, um, two events to make it simple. And now you want to know what are the probabilities for these events so you can figure out what kind of odds you would accept for and against. Now you read the probabilities off from your graph and the model gives you probability for black is roughly 1, the probability for green is roughly 0, but the system gives you probability for black is about 0 0.1, the probability for green is about 0.9. Now the consequence is dramatic. I mean, in the model, the odds in favor of black are um, diverging towards infinity. Hence, on the basis of the model, you should be willing to accept <coughs> whatever bet you're offered on black, but the real odds are about 1 to 9. So if you bet according to your model, you're losing money big time. The upshot is that you should be careful. I mean, in practice, you can avoid great losses if you're not too confident about your own model. And this is sort of a warning against the naive use of model. And in particular, for, 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 for practitioners, this seems to be an important message. So I hope this doesn't strike you as sort of um, academic hair splitting. But of course, this raises questions. So now that's the hopefully back part. The first problem, or the first questions we face, or oh, I should mention, these are questions we're currently racking our brains over. I don't have a neat solution for them. Uh, so that is really where things stand. If anybody has, has any great ideas, please let me know. <laughs> so the <coughs> question is, how can we tell the difference between model that, or kinds of models that um, allow practice-relevant probabilistic forecasts and ones which are not? Or more in other words, how can we tell the difference between models that are such that the like-for-like -like rule 
one applies to probabilistic forecasts and ones for which it does not. The way I presented it makes it look like as if the, um, if the culprit was chaos. And that's surely right at some level. But the question is, what kind of chaos? Is it all chaos? Can you distinguish between different kinds of chaos? Why chaos? All this is uh, something we would want to know I mean, in order to understand what's really going on. This, the second problem is, what, what do we do? So what do we do if such forecasts are impossible? Of what practical relevance are such models if we can't make forecasts of the kind we like? And one of the proposals we are studying is to, to go away from probabilistic forecasts and use non-probabilistic odds to do that. And the questions that come up then is, is there a way, or a particular principled way, to calculate non-probabilistic odds. You can always shorten your odds and thereby guarding against losses, but you want to do that in a principled way. And in particular, is there a way to calculate these non-probabilistic odds without assuming that we know the right model class? I mean, it could be that the um, equations we use are completely off, so it's just the wrong kind. It's not only that we don't get the parameter values right, it's just that we have the wrong type of equations. And then, um, should this be the case, how do we go about calculating such odds? Problem 2 2 then is justification. Well, why do we need non probabilistic odds? Why couldn't we do such things in a probabilistic framework? Why, for instance, can't we use probabilities to quantify second order uncertainties? That is, uncertainties about the model structure itself. Why is going non probabilistic? I'm an essential ingredient here. And there's questions concerning rationality. And those of you familiar with rational choice theory, probability will know that there are only theorems saying that if you don't bet according to probability calculus, you're, you're a Dutch bookable and you will use more money no matter what. So, so you, you have to speak to that concern somehow if you have a framework based on non-probabilistic odds. And I mean, once again, I want to emphasize that although these are theoretical questions, they are very relevant to, to the practice of science and confirms another poem, and namely there is nothing more practical than a good theory. So, so these, these questions are really questions that are of pressing practical interest and therefore should be addressed. So we're almost at the end, so summing up, so we've seen a philosophical analysis of modeling, and this um, analysis has um, uncovered problems with the currently used methodology in climate forecasting. And the problems really do matter. And then coming back to my um, second preamble, if you want to make climate forecasts of a very precise kind, then you use this sort of methodology, you're exactly like the friend of fish who wants to predict the, the number of fish in the pond, so you're invariably misled. But at least some of the climate projects these days are of that kind, and it would be worth rethinking what you're doing there. 
for one, because the man and woman power going into this project might be used um, in a different way. And you could also guard against future failures, because if we make all kind of precise predictions now, and then 20 years down the line, they turn out to be false, this is grist to the mill of the growing camp of science skeptics who think, well, science is, 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 is all this um, um, a pastime of sort of an elite, and, and you shouldn't really take that all that serious. There are other methods, and this is the focus. You, you hear about this going sort of the creationist corner, and etc. etc. So, by doing bold science that fails, you're lending ammunition to that camp, which we should not do. <laughs> so, it's, uh, it's really worth thinking carefully about what you spend your resources on and what we really do. And on that note, I want to thank you for listening so patiently. Thank you. probabilistic gods bit went very quickly at the end, so that I didn't really expound on that. What you do is um, that you shorten odds in certain places according to an algorithm. That makes them non-probabilistic because if you then look at the implied probabilities of such things, they wouldn't add up to one anymore. Um, the idea is motivated by the observation that you, when you have very long odds, you're at high risk, and shortening them protects you. But it's also motivated by the fact that um, you can do that sort of algorithmically, but you, you then lose the probabilistic character, and it's sort of difficult to turn these back into probabilities. And, they, um, and we have done simulations when you sort of let probabilists play bets <coughs> against non-probabilists and you study the time for um, a bankruptcy and it turns out that um, the probabilists um, um, go bust faster. Uh, so that's just what you see in, 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 in computer simulations. And that suggests that this may be an interesting route to investigate. But um, as I said, I mean this is an idea. We're not praising this as the solution to every problem. That's just one route we would like to pursue and study more. And sort of simulations of the kind that I just mentioned so I'm suggest that this is at least sort of an interesting uh, thing to, um, to look at. But uh, maybe there are other things to do. I mean, I don't know. So I'm certainly not saying this is the only thing to do. And if more people have... Um, um, some other ideas, then that should certainly be welcome. <laughs> it worries me that we always assume that normal distribution will apply. Uh, that's, I mean, it just happens to work sometimes, but it seems to be a major assumption that it will work for any of these climate change activities at all. And I don't see why you should start from assuming it's a normal distribution. I didn't really 
I mean, where do you think normal distributions enter? I mean, I didn't really talk about normal distributions. Well, you, well, the, 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 uh, <coughs> you were saying that the point might not be the, the point you thought it was, it yeah. might be some distance away. Yeah. And therefore, it was a normal distribution. Well, no, I didn't say this was a normal distribution. It's just whatever probability distribution mm. you take to be appropriate to the but situation. You, you I mean, well, I, I, I drew sort of a thing because that's what the computer spits out readily. I mean, maybe your probability distribution wants to be that. I really don't know. I mean, uh, um, and it doesn't matter. I mean, if you, um, in fact, the computer simulations we did weren't done with normal distributions. They were done with, as you see on the poster, uh, that's a bit slow. Uh, sorry, they were actually done with um, a box distribution. Zero, then a box, and then zero again. So I don't think anything, uh, anything depends on taking normal distributions. And they, of course, agree. I mean, you, you can't always assume that things are normally distributed. You're right in that. So, 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 so. Well, no, 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 we have this thing up here, so at some point, but uh, where is it? You have to run through the whole talk again. So. Yeah. Here, here we go. See, the, the um, distribution we plucked into our, our computer was, was that. It's basically close somewhere here. I'm 200 something. That's it. You, on one of your slides, had a question, chaos or what? I wonder whether the what is just ignorance. There's an ongoing... The reason why the current climate models crank out three to four degrees is that they assume positive feedback between the effect of CO2 interacting with the clouds and multiplying the effect of CO2, yet Professor Linsen, who's Professor of Meteorology at MIT, mm -hmm. is arguing that some of his results are showing a negative feedback. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much is not known that goes into these models. Oh yeah, that's of course the big question. Um, so I mean, this little scenario here, I mean, this term here that in my little fiction was that God whispered in your ear and that we didn't have in the model, is of course here to model the discrepancy between the real physics of the atmosphere and what we put in our models. And there's a lot we don't know. Um, that's completely right. I guess what the, the question is, what conclusion do we draw from that? I mean, uh, sort of we the need some more research, I thought. Yeah, but see, the question is how much more? I mean, how what we. More. <laughs> so, um, Lenny, you, you want to speak to that? Yeah, sure. No, it's a good point. Uh, Dick Lindsay made this announcement in 1992, and the intervening almost 20 years, the evidence has tended not to support his ideas. So, that doesn't mean that they're wrong, they won't happen sometime, but it, it, it does mean that this particular case hasn't really developed empirical support in those 18 years. That doesn't mean there isn't, that doesn't mean in any sense there isn't a huge amount of uncertainty 
sort of still holding on to something which is yet to get empirical support? I only know one, I only recall one bit of the Quran, and that is, he who professes to foretell the truth lies, even if correct. <laughs> and I wonder whether one should apply that to the metaphor, big <laughs> Yeah, but there, I, I, I guess the same would apply to, to the skeptics as well, then. I mean, this would apply to everybody who tries to say whatever about the future. But that is not a very helpful attitude, because we, would, we do want to know what the future bears, at least in, in some respects, whether it's um, good or bad. Uh, the question is not whether we're liars, the question is whether we're um, good liars in, <laughs> in, in, in um, that picture. So are there things we can say confidently and in good faith and that we really think that do happen, or are we just speculating? I mean, if you take, again, Newtonian mechanics and you forecast the trajectory of the moon, I'm quite happy to believe someone who does that for me, uh, because that's based on sound methodology, it has worked, it's been confirmed, that's good science. And what we want in more complicated cases is that we also get predictions of roughly that kind, but if we cannot get that, then at least you should be honest about it. Maybe try to get different kinds of predictions or make different kinds of forecasts. So I think the, the rhetoric thrust here is don't try to promise more than you reasonably can. I mean, that is sort of um, the, the message. And that would be the same for those who, who predict negative and positive results. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's um, um, sort of independent of where you stand in, in the debates on, on about a particular outcome. Um, maybe I can ask my own question here, yeah. it's vaguely related. <laughs> but can you say something about the intuition why non-linearity leads to chaos? I mean, I can see that it makes calculating more complicated, but what's the idea that it makes it unable to be handled? Is it just our cognitive limitations or is mm -hmm. it fundamentalism? Um, but what the effect, I mean, the effect of nonlinearity or um, chaos, these refer roughly to the same thing, are is that sort of points drift apart quickly. And it's just su surprising that it turns out that probability distributions are, in chaotic models, are sensitive towards small structural changes. I mean, I don't have a good intuitive explanation of why that is. The message to take away seems to be that probability distributions over initial conditions are the wrong um, instrument to account for model uncertainty. So that is what you learn from this. But why this is only such a problem in chaos, uh, I I would have to think about more. I think that 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 was the first question of m on my in my question list. That again, the computer won't give me in good time. Um, so, so this is this question essentially. I mean, this is sort of un understanding what's going on, and and I admit quite freely that we haven't got a good explanation yet, but we we would like to have one. So. Two ways that you would tend to examine models um, to judge whether they're behaving non-linearly or accurately would first be back.
testing. And secondly would be, as you say, experiments. Well, the experiment which you, you try to perform imperfect would be to say, look at, say, other planets' climates, or our own climate with different conditions at different times in the past. They would be the ways that you would have back testing in another way, in a, in a point way rather than a time series way. Does that tell you anything about the linearity or no, no, prone to chaosness of your model? No, no, no. I mean, still inside the box. You, you, I mean, you start on the weird equations. You know whether they're linear or they're nonlinear. So, I mean, the equations you put into your computer, you know what their properties are. You know that they're nonlinear. So, the question is, given you know they're nonlinear, that's your starting point, what can we reasonably say about the future? What kind of predictions can we make? And there seems to be sort of a widely held <coughs> view that this kind of moving distributions forward in time gives you reasonable <coughs> predictions, even if your model is nonlinear, which you know right from the outset. And I guess what we are trying to point out with the simple toy example is that you run into trouble there, because these models can mislead you, seriously. And but if you looked at your fish population in the past, mm. you would have identified a different probability distribution than the one that your model would expect. You, that's also an open question. How much can you improve a model by conditionalizing on some of the past history? But I mean, it, it's known that um, strongly chaotic systems, at least, they don't care about the past. The system for, forgets its past, as it were. And then conditionalizing on the past wouldn't be very helpful. Um, so that wouldn't, maybe in the shorter middle term, you could do a bit better because the distribution would be sharper, maybe. So it would be more like a point. So the divergence would be slower, maybe. But if you're interested in long term prediction, which in climate you are, uh, I'm a weather forecasting, you're only interested in the next five days. And then such things make a huge difference. But in climate, you're interested in long term predictions. And then a priori, it's not clear that you would improve anything by knowing more about the past. Um, <coughs> going back to your point about climate being a chaotic system and therefore unforecastable, uh, don't you think it's strange that the world is spending billions of, of, of pounds based upon a set of projections that you have just said aren't reliable? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the most fundamental tenet of the I, I, IPCC, mm -hmm. and yet, it's going back to Lorenz in the 60s, mm -hmm. conceptually it can't be done. Well, in all fairness, I mean, I don't know the precise uh, micro-history of all of that, so the realization that there, the, there are these problems seems to be somewhat recent. I'm sure if you if you backtrack in the literature you find precursors, you always find precursors for everything. But so that is fairly new. I mean um well, not really. But well if this is not mm, not not new then um well um I mean it's all the more surprising and um Why? I, sorry? Why? Yeah. And I, I guess it's it, it's time to face up to the truth. I mean, we would like to have certain forecasts. That, I mean, 
I agree that it would be wonderful to have these forecasts, very precise information about the weather in your postcode area in 2080. But if you can't have them, it's probably the best thing to say you can't. That's it. But what if you even take in short-term predictions of these models and they have proved to not be true? Doesn't that also... Um, it's an empirical test that the, con the conceptual theory is correct. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that you emphasized in the Look, it really depends on what lead times you're interested in. I mean, if you look at the, at the limit for time towards infinity, then what you find is that whatever distribution you put in at the beginning, you will end up with the home invariant measure of the, of the map. But if this lead time is thousands and thousands of years, then you may say, well, if we're interested in the next 50 or 100, there's still interesting information there. The question is, how much interesting information is there? So if you can narrow down the space of the expected <laughs> in the next 100 years somehow, so that's certainly good. I mean, I might agree from sort of a mathematical point of view, you can say, well, in, in, the, in the long run, it, it, it all washes out. But as Keynes remarked, I mean, in the long run, we're all dead. So um, if you can say something about the medium term, that's not bad. And I mean, that would be the ambition. I, w I wondered how you cope with Donald Rumsfeld's sort of unknown unknowns yeah. in, in, in this sort of concept. I mean, if we're talking about the interaction between population yeah. and yeah. industrialization, but supposing the world's population was halved, you know, by yeah. you know, some sort of yeah. 21st century version of the Black Death or something. You, you know what I mean? That the, 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 the inputs which you've gotten are the inputs which you have put in, but the, 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 the elegance of, of his assessment of risk was, was precisely yeah. here. That's here when I ask, without assuming that we have the right model class. Yeah. That the, these are the unknown unknowns. Yeah. Big problem. And um, again, um, all I can do is say yes. <laughs> nice problem, so I don't know what to do about it. Well, I, I obviously did cut the long story short. If you talk about probability distribution over initial conditions, I mean, you can't program a probability distribution into a computer. What you really do is you program um, an ensemble in it. 
but in, in the interest of simple presentation, I skipped that point. I mean, what you do really is, I think we had what, um, 1,064 points that you moved forward in time, and the, the, the shape of the distribution is encoded by the density of the point in a particular area. So that's what you do. I mean, it's exactly the same stuff. Just follow that up. I mean, the well, between your, your real life and your model based on the introduction of this new term. So, I mean, do these ensembles also run slightly different versions of the model to see how slight changes in the model itself, the structure, the second order things, affect the spread of the results? Yeah, that was the exercise. Yeah, I mean, you what you do is you take the same ensemble at the beginning, but you, you move it forward in time, once under the model and once um, on the God's dynamics. And then they come apart. So, so the idea is exactly to show you what can happen if you take the same ensemble at the beginning and you move it forward under different or slightly different um, dynamics. So that's exactly what we did. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I wonder whether <coughs> I wonder whether we are asking too much from the models. Maybe that the pe maybe people want them to be too specific. Mm. Um, the, the, you want you want you want the, the, the weather forecast to be specific and something that you can rely on. Whether you're going to take out a, mm. uh, a winter coat or, or what kind of clothing you're going to wear, but, but we shouldn't expect that kind of specificity from climate models, and we should. And I just wonder how much there is to that. But that's entirely right. I mean, see, all I'm saying is there is a discrepancy between the ambition that many people have and the results they can can possibly provide. Now you have to get the the two to line up. You can try to make models better, or you can scale down um, your ambitions, uh, which to do. Which one is the right way? I don't know. See, um, I don't want to come across here as a prophet saying I know the answer to everything. I mean, what I do is put the problem on the table, and what I hope the effect of this is will be is that people at least will start thinking about the problem. And maybe the right reaction is yours. Maybe we can do certain modeling things different. Probably you meet somewhere in the middle, you scale down expectations a bit and do other things differently, or you want to do different work with your models. I don't know. I mean so that's why I said at the beginning sort of the Achilles heel of the talk is its negativity as it were. So uh, I guess if those who work on that stuff um, appreciate um, the problem I've, I've achieved my mission for tonight. What the answer is, I mean, s scientists have to figure out. I don't know. I mean, um, if I knew, I would have told you. So. <laughs> um, the purpose of the exercise, not your exercise, I mean, the climate change forecasting exercise, is not to know precisely what the temperature is going to be. It's, it's to inform policy, it's to inform action. Otherwise, it would be a very remote period, uh, area of discussion. So I think what your analysis shows quite clearly is that we cannot be sure uh, that the uh, climate change will be three degrees or five degrees, but it equally shows we cannot eliminate the possibility of climate change. We, we cannot uh, say with certainty that there will not be climate change. 
So in this circumstance, policymakers seem to me have to deal with a problem of the Rumsfeld <coughs> kind. And the question is, what do you do when you have unknown unknowns? It seems to me there is probably some answer not in looking at different kinds of probability distribution, but looking at certain different kinds of policy formulations, which is how do you um, keep your options open under this situation of radical uncertainty? Well, I agree with you that at the end of the day, this should inform policy, but see, to make sensible policy, you want to know what the outcomes of various policy measures would be. And I mean, you, you can't just keep your options open. That's just not always possible. I mean, keep, keeping all your options open may well mean to reduce the output of greenhouse gases by 99 degree um, percent then you're certainly on the safe side. <laughs> uh, or it may mean just not worry at all and wait and see, which is what some <coughs> people see. I mean, you, I guess especially in this context, you have to realize that taking no action is also an action. And you can't always keep all your options open because the facts um, run ahead of you. So. Do those things which are necessary so that we would be well positioned for the variety of outcomes of climate change which might occur. That's all I mean by keeping Yeah, but, but again, you, you don't have the resources. I mean, if you want to guard against all kinds of scenarios, you have to start building huge flood defenses in large parts of the world. You, 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 you can't do that, um, maybe because no flooding will ever take place. Uh, so you put all the resources into that. I mean, and um, you, you you can't guard against all possible scenarios. It's just we don't have the resources to do that. And also, some of the measures would be contradictory, I suppose. Can we have the gentleman in the blue shirt? Uh, okay. Look, if you think practically um, about whether you're going to plant or not at a particular time, is it you want to plant at the right time? Um, and you want to insure against that. Okay, so you've got all, I mean, you've got all these micro insurance um, what do you call them? structures, mm -hmm. organisations. Um, would you would you pay an insurance premium? Would you? Um, I mean, the whole the whole way that micro insurance works means that if you get it wrong, if you plant at the wrong time, mm -hmm. you get the money back to plant again. Yeah? So mm. you're insuring against mistakes. Yeah. Yeah? No, no, you you you're entirely right that this is an insurance question, and well, I should have mentioned that. Sorry, but part of the research is actually founded by um, a Munich Re. So um, insurance companies are very interested in that sort of stuff because they want to assess future risks. Uh, because if things happen you don't expect, you may lose more money than you have. So that's why also you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, I try, don't care, or regard against all kind of possible scenarios. You can't afford it. So that's why you must have some kind, or um, ideally you would like to have forecasts that are reliable at some level at least. The question is what level that will be. So. Okay, I've got like two points. The one is that to my knowledge these models 
are not only validated on ter in terms of in initial conditions, but on also tested against paleoclimatic evidence. Mm -hmm. And within some degree of initial conditions and C like CO2 levels, they can reproduce paleoclimatic evidence quite well. Mm -hmm. So there is evidence that they are not that bad in some restricted range. And as, as a conclusion of that, and referring to the more practical related questions as well, what these models essentially do is to reflect the best available knowledge. So if you refuse to use the best available knowledge, what else would you like to do then? Well, look, of course it's good to use best knowledge, but if for some reason you come to the conclusion the best knowledge isn't good enough, yeah. then you just... You're, you're a bit like the proverbial fool who looks for the wallet under the lamp because there is light. <laughs> uh, you may have lost it somewhere else. So, look again, I'm not a science skeptic, I love science, and we should use the best knowledge we have, etc. But if that's not good enough, we may do better by um, acknowledging that. Now, paleoclimatic evidence, so um, um, Lenny is more expert in this than I am, you want to speak to that? Practically, I, I, I don't know, I don't want to go out on that limp, but I mean, we did whisper that into some climate scientists' ear at least, and so the reactions seem to be mixed. Some of the reactions seem to be exactly the one that came here. Well, that's the best we can do, and you have to do something rather than nothing, so, so let's go on with it until we have something better to do. Uh, which I'm not sure is the right reaction because this doing this sort of stuff eats up all the all the man and woman power, and maybe that would be better spent thinking differently about these issues. Another reaction is um, so some people say, yeah, we know, but let's keep quiet. <laughs> uh, that is also not very helpful. So, but but that is sort of the reaction you get. I mean, do you want to speak to this? The yeah, the <laughs> day for... Um, well, I, 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 I'm a climate scientist. I'm a climate model. I think there's, there's an aspect that really just your first couple of slides, we, we seem to have sort of gone off topic a little bit in, in the discussion. In, in terms of in terms of what do we do about climate change, I think Roman's first slide was the important one. So knowing uh, that with very high 
likelihood uh, we are going to see global warming because apart from Dick Lindsay's theory, which has been out there for years, we, we have lots of uncertainties in the feedback, but lots of evidence, nothing to do with climate models, but you would get positive feedback. There's lots of light, uh, evidence for positive feedback, so they could be very large, much larger than the sort of three degrees level that we talk about, and they could not be so large. We, we don't know, there's uncertainty there, but all the evidence without the model is, is kind of saying, look, we, we're looking at warming, we're looking at a big risk of warming, and that that will mess up the climate. That kind of comes without models. <laughs> so the, this kind of debate is, uh, which we seem to be edging towards in terms of whether climate change is a problem, whether we should, should be spending billions on trying to uh, avoid climate change, I don't think anything that Roman said uh, puts that into question at all. The, the question of the Roman is, I think, that all to do with what is going to happen here? What's going to happen later? What are the details of it? And there's also a lot of funding going into that. And that is where we get into this question of models. So I guess my yeah. question would be, if, if, if UK government were putting in 20 million and was asking for... So um, this is this sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so if, if UK government was putting in uh, 20 million pounds and he put out a, a call saying, please give me probability distributions of what's going to happen in London, uh, what would you tell them, how should they better spend that money? <laughs> than the whole of, yeah. yeah. If one option is to use models, run, it, run an ensemble of models and try and say what's going to happen in London with the model, what, what are the alternatives? Yeah, and, and I guess um, I didn't want to commit to any alternatives simply because I don't know what I mean again I am not a prophet and, the, and I don't have an axe to grind here in particular I'm not I'm a paid by any particular pressure group I mean I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm just pointing out what seems to be sort of a pressing problem in the methodology that is used for making predictions and um, our government spends an awful lot of money on the project that has dim chances for success and sort of I think we better start thinking about how we could spend um, the money wiser I, I, I guess that is the message and you, you should um, invest into thinking about that and that is sort of the point to try to make with Bacon so um, I think we're sort of in a state of confusion at the moment I think it's better you realize what goes wrong and then you can start to gather your pieces and think how could we do something better I don't know. You're entirely right. I mean, obviously, the particulars of how fast the distributions grow apart, etc., that really depends on the details of the model. And also, um, we haven't said what um, ta one time step is. For the sake of illustration, I said think about a week. But you, you, you don't know what that is. 
Um, see, one reaction would also be to start studying reliable lead times. So, so if, if, if people can come up with arguments and say, look, all that you're doing here is not relevant because it only starts going hop 300 years um, down the line, then I'm perfectly satisfied. I mean, that is great. I mean, but as far as I know, and again, the experts may, may correct me, nothing of that kind is available. We don't have a result saying that probability distributions are all just fine for the next 50 years. I mean, if you give me something like that, I'm, 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 I'm quite happy. Chance is just, or at least there's a life possibility that you're, you're off fairly <coughs> quickly. And you're, you're really like the gardener and, and, and the fish. And um, again, it, it just may be a problem you want to study, but not much attention has been paid to um, that. And if this motivates someone to ask this question and study it, great. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks. Okay, so for those who didn't get to ask their questions or for those who would like to discuss further, there's the reception right now, or it's held now, and it's in the Lakatosh building, so it's not in this building, and if you would like to go but you don't know where it is, maybe just tag along with the yeah. Or an easier algorithm, that's the building opposite the pub, George IV. If you find the pub, yes. So you surely find your way to the pub, but then just don't go into the pub, go into the other building, but first floor. <laughs>